Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week to talk about the subject of NATO, David Gibbs, who is a professor of history at the University of Arizona and has published widely on the Democratic Republic of Congo, the former Yugoslavia, Afghanistan, as well as NATO. David Gibbs has been published in numerous publications. We'll have his bio up at talknationradio.org. He is working on a new book called How America Became a Right-Wing Nation, and he recently debated the topic of so-called humanitarian intervention at the Oxford Union Society in the UK. We'll try to talk about all of these things. David Gibbs, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. So uh, a meeting of NATO members is happening over in London. What do you think ought to be done with NATO? really never had much of a function after the end of the Cold War. It was created in 1949 with the explicit intention of creating an alliance to protect against um, possible Soviet invasion of Western Europe. Uh, And that uh, possibility simply disappeared with the end of the Cold War in 1989-1990. It had opposed the Soviet-led Warsaw Pact Alliance, which itself dissolved in 1990. And uh, since then, it it seems like it's an institution uh, that is simply engaging in self-maintenance and looking for new tasks. And its main effect on world politics has been massively destabilizing, as well as consuming large amounts of resources from both the United States as well as Western Europe. Um, And so I don't really see any positive function for NATO at this point in time. Isn't there, uh, some would suggest, a new Cold War? So if it had a function in the previous Cold War, it's got the same old function going now? Well, the question is, I suppose that is, in fact, uh, the way it's being justified is to protect against a renewed threat from the East, this time from the Republic of Russia as the successor state to the former Soviet Union. I think what this ignores is the way in which NATO itself has largely caused this new Cold War in very clear and obvious ways. Um, I think the origin of the problem was in 1990, when the United States made a pledge to Mikhail Gorbachev, the leader of the Soviet Union at the time, that NATO would not expand one inch to the east. I believe that was the exact wording, or close to the exact wording, of the U.S. Secretary of State at the time, James Baker. And, um, you know, this was made as a public pledge. Um, Recently, Der Spiegel, by the way, uh, the German news magazine, a few years ago, did a look back at that agreement, looking at the public record as well as uh, the declassified documents. They conducted interviews in the U.S. and Germany. And, um, you know, it was a fairly careful analysis, and their conclusion was there was indeed a promise made to the Russians not to expand NATO as a quid pro quo for Russian support for German reunification, which occurred in 1990. Uh, And then the United States promptly violated that agreement and began expanding NATO uh, into most of the former Eastern Bloc countries, including Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, which were part of the Soviet Union itself. Uh, The the Russians uh, see this as a threat to their security because there is, in effect, a hostile alliance on their borders encroaching and encroaching, and B, an act of bad faith, because the United States had agreed not to do this and promised not to do this, and then violated that agreement. 
And so I, I would see this as really the origins of the uh, tensions between the United States and Russia. This is a violation of this agreement not to expand NATO. And it would have been far less, far better for world security. Again, it's a question of what you want. If you want world security, avoiding a new Cold War with Russia is a good thing. And getting rid of NATO would have solved that problem completely, because after all, the Russians had gotten rid of the Warsaw Pact, so it would have been reasonable to get rid of NATO. And I think we would have had far less tension in the world if NATO had simply gone out of existence. Um, and its continued existence is, is, is a continuing source of instability, especially in relations with Russia. Well, it's an excellent point that NATO and its members have played a huge role in creating the new Cold War. I'm not sure the exact same point couldn't be made about the previous Cold War. Uh, but right. but the, the, the expansion of NATO uh, that you refer to, uh, I mean, it's ongoing at, the, at this very moment, right? Despite the, the notion uh, among the U.S. public that President Donald Trump is somehow opposed to NATO. What is, what is, uh, what is Trump's relationship with NATO? He's intermittently made anti-NATO noises, and as, in terms of making noises, he's gone beyond any previous president, and questioned the value of NATO in terms of its economic burden, and questioned it particularly in light of the fact that European countries spend less on the military, substantially less in many cases, than the United States spends, and sees it as an unfair burden on the U.S. Um, and so he's made these noises, and I think those noises have alarmed the foreign policy establishment. Um, but I think that in terms of his policies, he's been very supportive of NATO, and he's taken no actions that suggest uh, anything on the horizon of um, eliminating NATO or even reducing its its importance. Um, so, uh, you know, there's been something of a disconnect between the evanescent rhetoric of sometimes questioning NATO's validity on the one hand and essentially continuing and even strengthening NATO on the other hand, which has been the actual policy. Yeah, it, it seems that we've we've seen these missiles going into nations on the border of, of Russia and huge war rehearsals that they, you know, refer to as, as exercises uh, and, right. and, and sanctions and evictions of diplomats and all sorts of anti-Russian right. policies and bombing Russian troops yep. in Syria and so forth. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and yet... Uh, there, there's almost this demand, this moral imperative to be pro-NATO because Trump is is anti-NATO. Are you are you seeing that in the in the U.S. public as as I am? Yeah, well, there is a sort of uh, as people have often noted a certain tribalism in American politics that really isn't altogether ideological, but is simply tribal. And um, you know, the idea goes that if Trump makes noises that are critical of NATO, that means NATO must be a good thing. Um, I don't like Trump, obviously, and I, I don't like his policies on NATO either, which have strengthened it. Uh, but it's completely illogical thinking to say that just because Trump sometimes criticizes NATO verbally, that therefore NATO is a good thing. That doesn't follow at all. But I think there are many people on the sort of liberal left who fall into that mindset. Um, and that's really uh, a very foolish and dangerous mindset, in my view, um, that, you know, just because Trump says these things, that doesn't mean we should, you know, take the opposite point of view as a knee-jerk reaction. That is, in effect, what has been happening here. Uh, absolutely. What, what about the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, who's made uh, slightly different uh, verbal noises about NATO? What's his relationship? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, verbally, what he's done is made a very dramatic statement criticizing U.S. leadership under Trump, which is a 
a fairly easy thing to do in Europe, since in most countries in Europe, Trump is not popular. Um, and, um, you know, wondered about the possibility of, um, you know, a European, and implied at least, the possibility of some form of an independent European military and foreign policy. Uh, he's at least hinted at that. Uh, and this is a long-standing issue in France that goes back to Charles de Gaulle, the first president of the French Fifth Republic. And, I, and there's almost a sense that French presidents after de Gaulle have all tried in varying degrees to imitate de Gaulle. And I, I think that's what Macron is doing now as he's playing the Gaullist card. De Gaulle famously left the NATO Joint Military Command in 1966 and did adopt an independent foreign policy. And even though he was a very conservative anti-communist, he... Uh, you know, established somewhat closer ties to the Soviet Union, uh, even as he developed nuclear uh, missiles pointed at the Soviet Union. And um, so I think, you know, Macron is, is to some extent trying to sound a little bit like Charles de Gaulle here. Uh, on the other hand, whether he'll follow through on this or not is very doubtful. I mean, Germany has so far not been very responsive uh, to de Gaulle's criticisms, and Merkel has criticized Macron for saying these things. And for any kind of a European independent foreign policy to go anywhere, it would need Germany on board, and so far at least, that doesn't seem to be happening. Um, and so I, at the moment, at least, I would see what Macron is saying is just a kind of um, showcasing of, of Macron himself, um, a political showcasing. And maybe that's too cynical, I don't know. Uh, but unless it is followed up by any real concrete steps, uh, that's certainly what it looks like to me. We're speaking with David Gibbs, professor of history at the University of Arizona. Uh, one thing that Donald Trump has done is demand that NATO members uh, invest more money in weapons, in militaries, uh, with, uh, as far as I can tell, some success, uh, at least some claims of success there. Uh, and whether those militaries, uh, you know, are, are dedicated to NATO and to what extent the European Union uh, develops a European military, uh, this is a pro military pro-normalization of larger militaries uh, move that anyone who cares about peace ought to be worried about, right? Well, there, there is, there's no doubt that Trump's principal criticism of NATO all along had been the U.S. is paying an unreasonable amount of money for NATO, and Europeans are paying an insufficient amount of money. And other presidents, or at least members of the foreign policy establishment, have said this before, but never with as much emphasis as Trump. Uh, and so I, I think the emphasis is less the U.S. leaving NATO and more trying to bully the Europeans to spend more money on NATO than they're spending already. That at least is the main thrust of what Trump has been saying. And there has been some augmentation in European military spending. The country they're most concerned about is Germany, which spends uh, a little over 1% of its GDP on its military. Now, one could say that, um, you know, Maybe the Germans have better things to spend their money on, on the, than the military, and maybe that's a good thing. I should add, by the way, in case anybody has forgotten, that Germany had a long history of militarism, as did Japan. And, uh, you know, Germany could have been called at one point in time a, a kind of a scary country. Um, after 1945, they pretty much decided to go on a different route with low military spending and a de-emphasis on militarism. One could say that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Um, and so, um, you know, Trump's focus upon increasing military spending by Europe, yes, that's certainly not not something that anybody who wants a more peaceful world should celebrate. Quite the opposite, I would say. 
I couldn't agree more. Uh, what about the role that NATO plays in U.S. government and politics and public understanding and the way in which it seems, uh, in, in my view, to, to sort of pseudo-legalize, pseudo-legitimize wars? Uh, people have this vague notion that mm -hmm. if it's a NATO war or a coalition war, there's something legalistic about it, uh, sort of blending, right. blending the idea of NATO together with the idea of the United Nations. And, and on top of which, which Congress sort of gets to not oversee the atrocities in its wars if it's a if it if they're NATO atrocities isn't isn't there a real a, a real advantage uh, to to corrupt politicians in Washington of mm -hmm. of having NATO involved in things? Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, it's it must be emphasized that NATO's destabilizing character hasn't just been confined to us and NATO relations with Russia, but elsewhere as well. Of course, the Libyan intervention. That was a multinational NATO intervention, uh, and it was a disaster. Uh, the European involvement in Afghanistan and Iraq has been, um, to some extent, orchestrated and legally established through NATO to some degree. Um, and so, uh, you know, NATO has been involved in some of the most disastrous decisions of the post-Cold War era. Um, and so its legacy is not a positive one. I know that the interventions in the Balkans are perceived to uh, have been successful, but I, I have actually um, spent a lot of time arguing that this is a false perception. Uh, basically, the NATO intervention in both Bosnia and Kosovo uh, worsened the crises in both countries. This is especially dramatic in Kosovo, uh, with the scale of combat atrocities and ethnic cleansing greatly increased after the NATO bombing began. Um, and so, um, you know, there is uh, obviously the, the NATO destabilization goes uh, well beyond Russia. Now, as far as, um, you know, the U.S. role in using NATO as a legalistic justification, I think that's correct. The general focus of the U.S. after the end of the Cold War was to get around the idea of using the United Nations Security Council as a means for justifying war. Um, because, obviously, for example, Russia and China have veto power over that on the Security Council and trying to use NATO as a substitute that somehow, if it's a multinational NATO intervention, gaining assent from NATO, uh, that's trying to be presented as a legal justification for war. The problem with that is if you look at the UN Charter, it assigns, it doesn't mention NATO at all. It only assigns the right to engage in war-making power for anything other than clear-cut self-defense to the UN Security Council. And we could make a strong argument, I believe, that the uh, U.S. interventions by NATO um, are essentially a violation of the U.N. Charter. They did not gain and would not have gained assent from the Security Council. And so there, there is this effort uh, to try and give, them, give intervention more of a veneer of legitimacy based upon NATO participation, yes. I don't think there's any question about that, nor about the fact that the Kellogg-Briand Pact mentions neither NATO nor the UN Security Council. Um, I, I, I want, I'm interested in your take on, on Ukraine Gate, on the one bizarre outrage that Congress has selected out of all the potential impeachable charges, uh, and, and how it's, it's normalizing the idea of, of mm -hmm. militarizing Europe as a, as a, a liberal goodwill humanitarian 
humanitarian effort. I, I just read a book uh, on the case for for U- uh, Ukraine impeachment by by Neil Katyal, where he 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 in the beginning of the book he he gives an example of a quintessentially impeachable offense. And rather than choosing any of the hundreds of impeachable offenses presidents right. have committed, he 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 fantasizes this nightmare scenario in which NATO demands that the U.S. join in a war because some other NATO nation is involved in a war and the United States refuses. This would be the ultimate impeachable offense in, in his view. What, what, do you, what do you make of this trend? Well, as a general point, the whole scandal involving first Russiagate and then Ukraine Gate, which are politically at least very closely interrelated, the backdrop to this is U.S. tensions with Russia. And if you follow the testimony that has been given, at the impeachment hearings before the Intelligence Committee. And by the way, I think it's very significant that the principal hearings have not been conducted so far, at least by the Judiciary Committee, but by the Intelligence Committee. I think that's a rather dramatic development that has been little noted. But anyway, uh, if you look at the testimony, much of the testimony focuses not only on the fact uh, that Trump engaged in abuse of power, and I don't think there's any doubt he did that, but I think that associated with that is the idea that he's a national security threat because he's not properly backing America's ally against Russia. And so there's at least a strong political implication that part of the criminality of Trump is he's not properly confronting Russia to a sufficient extent. Um, And I think it's really very dangerous the way the liberal left has gotten on the bandwagon, not only for impeachment, but also the associated issue, uh, that we should basically ratchet up tensions with Russia at the same time. These two go together very closely. And there's no way of disentangling the two, at least not at this point, that um, impeachment has been used as a way not only to discredit Trump, something I have no problem with because I don't like Trump, but it also has been used simultaneously as a means of justifying a new Cold War and showcasing the need for a new Cold War, which at least at the moment seems to be even more popular among liberal Democrats than among Republicans. That's a pretty dramatic reversal in some ways of... Uh, you know, there's at least some skepticism about war among liberals in the past. That seems to have been, they seem to have evaporated with this very strong bandwagon in favor of Russia. By the way, I think it's incorrect to basically take the view that Trump has somehow uh, been supportive of Russia. If you look at his record, it's actually much more confrontational towards Russia than Obama was. Obama was not willing, at least publicly, to sell weapons to Ukraine. That is something that Trump has done, and that is, in fact, one of the major sources of the current scandal, that he temporarily withheld some of these weapons for political reasons. Um, But anyway, I think that the main point I want to make here is that um, in supporting impeachment with the enthusiasm that liberals have done, I think uh, there's a sense that uh, they're ignoring the way this is paving the way for a new Cold War and showcasing uh, the need for a new Cold War. And this is going to have very dangerous consequences that could be much more long-lasting than even the Trump presidency. Very, very well said. Of course, I support uh, 85 different impeachments, not this one. <laughs> we'll see if the no, Judiciary Committee picks up any of yes. the ones I would I would support. Uh, and of yes. course, it's not sell weapons, it's give weapons, or technically give money to buy weapons, uh, is what the right, United States right. is. It's subsidized. It's, it is subsidized. 
oxidized. That's right, yes. What, what, what do you make of this phenomenon in which uh, everybody's belated, not everybody, but many are belatedly waking up to the, to the climate danger, but the nuclear danger, the doomsday clock, is as close to midnight as ever, uh, and right. NATO is illegally putting nukes in various countries, including countries the United States is getting in spats with, like Turkey. Uh, how, mm-hmm. how is this not a, a, a threat to the globe? Well, that is true, that liberals are quite correctly focusing heavily on the climate change issue as an existential threat to the human race, which in fact it is. Uh, But I think they tend to ignore the way nuclear weapons are also a threat. Um, And um, and they're becoming an increasing threat. I I think there's a kind of complacency about this, that people see nuclear war as kind of the idea of nuclear war, the threat of nuclear war, as a relic of the Cold War era. And because it's a relic of the Cold War era, we decide we don't have to worry about it now. But this ignores the fact that uh, the United States and so and Russia have a thousand active nuclear warheads, um, just like during well, not just like during the Cold War is more than, but a thousand nuclear warheads on each side is is more than enough probably to essentially destroy civilization as we know it, uh, very likely destroy the human race as well. And, um, you know, this is something that really hasn't received much attention. I'm very surprised about that. And on climate change, people ignore the fact that one very significant contributor to climate change is the military. One of the most um, carbon-producing instruments ever designed is the after-burning engine on fighter planes. And so this is not an insignificant factor in contributing to climate change. Uh, so the, the issue of militarism and climate change are not unrelated. Uh, very, very glad to hear you say that. And of course, the wars in some cases are openly now exclusively for stealing their oil rather than that being some unacceptable liberal mm. conspiracy theory. Um, what what do you, you... You recently did a debate at Oxford on yes. so-called humanitarian intervention. I'm, I'm curious yes. uh, if you can recount briefly how that went and what your case was again, because everybody's for humanitarianism, right? Mm. Well, it's, uh, I would say it's a misnomer. If you, I just, the main point I emphasized was that if you look at the record of humanitarian intervention, it produced humanitarian, one humanitarian disaster after another. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a tendency to rewrite history and forget that uh, the Iraq intervention, and even to some extent the Afghanistan intervention, were justified in part in humanitarian grounds. Many of the cheerleaders for humanitarian intervention endorse these interventions explicitly on humanitarian grounds. And there's a tendency to forget that, that humanitarianism was a major argument here. And these were humanitarian catastrophes. The more recent one, of course, is Libya, which destabilized not only Libya, but much of North Africa. It produced a secondary civil war in Mali, for example. And, uh, you know, I am very surprised that there's very little sense of accountability here. Uh, among either policymakers or intellectuals, you'd think that people would express regret and even a sense of um, guilty conscience that they contributed to these humanitarian disasters. But there's there's nothing like that, or very rarely does anybody express regret. Uh, there's only one major exception I can think of. There was a right-wing Republican congressman who recently passed away from North Carolina named Walter Jones, um, I'm not a big fan of his politics. He's on the far right, and I'm certainly not. Uh, and he was one of the original, most enthusiastic supporters of the Iraq War. Um, and, um, uh, you know, he was the one who, in fact, um, uh, demonized France for opposing the war. He created the idea of freedom fries to replace French fries and so on. He came to very deeply 
regret his support for the war and, and repeatedly and over time publicly apologized for it. Uh, he's a Christian, um, you know, um, evangelical type, and he used phrases, I don't know if this is an exact quote, but he said things like, may God forgive me for having ever supported this war. And, um, you know, I'm not a big fan of these sort of religious imagery or his politics overall, but I appreciate the fact that he's given a sincere apology for his complicit activity in a disaster, a humanitarian disaster. And I appreciate that fact, and I wish we would see more of those things. We haven't. Well, we we certainly haven't seen anything remotely close to what would be decent and and expect and what should be expected. But I I think compared to other wars, I mean, we saw even the New York Times apologize for its role publicly, whether sincerely or not. And we've seen many well, many whistleblowers well, and and veterans against the war. I mean, low level members of the military and the State Department turned against the war. Not enough people mm. at, at high, in high mm. places, uh, and, and no. it's certainly uh, there are people still proudly bragging about having taken part in it. Uh, but uh, with just a few minutes left, you know, yep. the, the, over in England, the, the No to NATO coalition, the Stop the War coalition are protesting mm. now. Uh, what can and should be done? How can people uh, demand uh, an end to, to NATO and to these sorts of practices? What I would like to see is a revival of the tradition of sort of a left-wing anti-militarism, which seems to have not died completely, but certainly diminished greatly since the end of the Cold War. Um, you've really had the left uh, sort of ignore foreign policy issues or sometimes even join the bandwagon for interventionism. And obviously much of the left is supporting uncritically uh, the impeachment hearings despite their pro-war character. Um, and I find that very disappointing. In fact, and I, this is very perplexing to me, if you look at really the, anti, the, the critique of militarism and intervention and military spending, it's heavily weighted to the libertarian right these days. There's much anti-war sentiment on the libertarian right. And in some ways, I'm happy about that, that we now have, you know, have the potential, at least, for a broad ideological you know, cross-ideology coalition here, which, is, in a sense, is a good thing. But I'm very disappointed that the left hasn't been more active in these things and seems to have almost, some parts of the left, anyway, have almost abdicated on that issue. We need to revive the tradition of the anti-Vietnam War movement, the anti-nuclear movement of the 1980s. I think people need to dig back into history and start looking again at those movements and trying to revive them. Uh, I, I do agree. I would remind people that groups like World Beyond War, of which I'm the director, and Veterans for Peace, of which I'm on the advisory board, and Code Pink, and, and dozens of other peace groups do exist, even if they've been banned from the corporate media uh, and and ought to be supported. Um, the uh, just, just a minute left, uh, mm -hmm. David Gibbs, uh, do, you, do you think that people should oppose impeachment at this point, or demand that Gerald Nadler impeach for some of the, some of the actually justified and serious offenses that he has himself admitted over the past three years were impeachable. You know, I'm, I, I personally think impeachment is a mistake at a number of different levels, including the fact that it's much more likely to hurt the Democrats than help them. Uh, I don't, I mean, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that Trump has committed impeachable offenses. Um, and, but the, politically, I, I think it's not working. And as I said, the main effect is going to be to increase the likelihood of a Cold War with Russia, and those grounds, I don't support it. I suppose if I were a member of Congress and it came to a vote, I'd have to vote for it, just because he clearly has committed impeachable offenses. That's 
far as I can tell, undeniable. But I think the whole enterprise is not one that people should invest any political capital in, especially since, to a large extent, their the impeachment drive is coming from the militarist right, and that is something I simply cannot support. Uh, again, I agree, but would remind people that RootsAction.org, of which I'm the campaign coordinator and other groups, have demanded impeachment on emoluments violations literally since uh, Inauguration Day. We've been speaking... That I would support. That I would support. Uh, well, we'll see if Gerald Nadler agrees with us. Uh, David Gibbs is a professor of history at University of Arizona. We'll have links to his bio and his books on TalkNationRadio.org. David Gibbs, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you for having me. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, Please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.